Well, hello, my friends, and thank you for joining me today for Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you're joining us today. And we are pondering the book of Proverbs. And throughout the week, we've been talking about benefits of understanding life and benefits of living with wisdom. So today I want to talk to you about striving in times of stress. I'm going to give you three steps to thrive while you're under stress. And uh, this is a two-part broadcast, so join me tomorrow as we look at this subject of how I can have stress-free living or how I can thrive in the midst of stress. Well, he was Europe's 350-pound wrestling champ a little over two generations ago. His name was Yusef. But people called him the Terrible Turk because of his massive size and his awesome strength. He won the championship in Europe, and he sailed to the United States to contend with our champion. And our champion was the Strangler Lewis, who is a much smaller man who weighed in just over 200 pounds. Well, Strangler Lewis had a simple plan of how to defeat his opponents. He would put his arm around their neck and he'd grab that competitor and around the neck he'd grab his arms and he'd cut off the oxygen at the Adam's apple. Many opponent had passed out in the ring with the strangling tactics. Well, the problem Lewis discovered when it came to fight the terrible Turk was that this European giant didn't have a neck. He just was straight from the head down to his massive shoulders. So in the ring, Strangler Lewis couldn't even get a hold of him. Uh, he couldn't get around the neck of Yusef. And so before long, Yusef flipped over Lewis right on the mat and pinned him. After winning the championship, the terrible Turk demanded that every bit of the $10,000 prize money be given to him in gold. He took that gold and, and he wrapped it around the championship belt around his vast equator-like middle. He stuffed that gold into the belt and he boarded the next ship back to Europe. But as he was heading back to Europe, he was not only captured by America's glory, but he possessed this gold as well. And he had won it and he thought that he would be living forever. So as the terrible Turk set sail on the USS Burgon, halfway across the Atlantic. A storm strikes, and the ship begins to sink. The terrible Turk went boldly over the side with his gold still wrapped around his body. The added weight was too much, even for this heavyweight champion, and he sunk like an anvil before crew members could get him into a lifeboat. He was never seen again. You see, the stress and the weight of all that gold took him down to his grave. You know, Jesus loved to teach in parables. And he said, one day, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. And so he thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. There I will store all my grain and all my goods, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus concludes by saying, this is how it will be 
with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Well, as you're living a time of stress, a time of pressure, I've discovered that stress cannot be eradicated from our lives, but it can be managed. How in the world do I manage stress well with a mindset of actually thriving during times of stress? Well, here are three steps to thrive even when you're under a lot of stress. You know, stress is not a death sentence for you. God knows the stress that we are facing. I've always found it amazing that two people could be facing similar problems, similar stresses, and one will go through that time and actually come out the other side filled with peace, filled with joy, and it seems like they were thriving in that time of stress. With the other person, this is a point that has derailed them. I'm thinking about how people respond to health crises or financial crises in their lives. Here are some steps that will help you to thrive even when you're under stress. Number one, and these are all coming from the book of Proverbs, right? As we ponder the book of Proverbs, if you want to thrive during times of stress, tighten up your priorities and tighten up your plans. Proverbs 17, 24 says, an intelligent person aims at wise actions, but a fool starts off in many different directions. In other words, I prioritize the plans that I have and I aim in a wise direction. I don't go off in many different directions. I discovered a long time ago, there's not a hundred things that I'm good at. There's only three or four things that I am really good at. And so I aim my actions according to the priorities and the plans that God has for me. Proverbs 12, 11 says, you know, it's really stupid to waste time on useless projects. You only have one life to live. It's very short. So prioritize your time so that you don't waste it on useless projects. Proverbs 16, 9 says, we should make plans counting on God to direct us. You see, a life in which anything goes will ultimately be a life in which nothing goes. If we try to do everything, we end up doing nothing well. For example, I decided many years ago as a pastor that I would really limit the times that I spend in counseling. When I first began in ministry, I would spend hours and hours and hours and hours counseling people. My entire day would go from one appointment to another appointment to another appointment. And I discovered that I was not really being productive. I wasn't given time that I needed for my family. I wasn't given time that I needed for my church. I wasn't given time in personal study of God's word. I became consumed with counseling other people. So I decided that I'm only going to now counsel members of my church, and members that are doing three things, worshiping every Sunday, serving somewhere in our church, and involved in some kind of a small group. Because I've discovered that those three areas, worshiping, serving, and being in a small group, solve a lot of our problems. Uh, So I have uh, no intentions in my life uh, of being a full-time counselor. I have no intentions of running for political office. I don't have time. And to be frank with you, uh, that would be a step down for me. I'm fanatical about just a few things. My God, my family, my ministry, those are my top three. So in telling this story that Jesus is giving his warning, and he's giving a warning against greed. But he also points out the futility of having priorities that are not in line with God's will. The men in the parable that we just read had very clear priorities. First, he wanted to accumulate wealth. Second, 
He wanted to use that wealth to secure his own future. Now, any retirement investment consultant will tell you that saving for the future is good, even necessary. It's a good pursuit. Many of us presume, however, there will be time to take stock in eternal things later in life. Now, there are two fatal flaws in this thinking. First, how do I know there will be a later in my life? The man in Jesus' story had no idea how close his death was. He had no idea that his life would be demanded for him, it says, that very night. You see, the reason God calls him a fool is not because he is into abusive language. God chooses his words carefully. He does not call the man evil, doesn't call him wicked. He calls the man a fool. Because in all the man's planning, everything is accounted for except the one thing that is inevitable. The man is going to be facing death. It is the one area that he didn't plan for. The man failed to consider that at some point, he was going to die. He neglected to plan for the most obvious and the most predictable event of all of human experience. We're all going to die. We don't know when, but we all know we're going to die. There was a second flaw in the way that this man was thinking, and that was when the time comes and we want to turn to the eternal, we may not actually have developed the ability to do so because he had developed a habit of avoidance. You know, it's a naive assumption that a pattern of steadily avoiding God's claims would suddenly be overturned just before it's too late. I was talking to a man one time and he says, well, pastor, I know that I need to get right with the Lord and I will, but I will as I get older. That man never got older. He died in his 20s. You see, our character is shaped by the decisions that we make. The longer we allow the habits of our youth to remain unchallenged, the harder they are to change. Jeremiah told his people that you could find the Lord, you could seek the Lord, and you could find Him when you seek with Him with all of your heart. You know, as I think about the importance of success and security, and and I'm not downplaying the significance of security and success, but there is something far more meaningful than these. As a matter of fact, theologians actually have coined a term that stands for the supreme good. It is summum bunum. What is the supreme good? And they tell us that we don't want to miss out on the supreme good. Good. In Revelation 1.8, we find a biblical version of Summum Bunum. The Apostle John writes, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. You see, Jesus as the Lord calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So Jesus, at the end of the book of Revelation, says of himself, this is who I am, Alpha, Omega, first and last, beginning and end. You see, nothing and no one preceded the Lord. Nothing will follow him. He is the supreme author of matter, of energy, of space, and of time. The infinite and personal, the I am, is the ultimate reality, and everything else is derived from him. It is the utmost reality and is a timeless reality that God is an unchanging person. 
He is the sunum bunum, the supreme God of humanity. He is known and to be known by us. You see, the wisest thing that we can do is to seek the Lord with our whole hearts. He wants to be found, but he also wishes to be sought. You know, he wants to be found. He's not hiding from us. I I guess you could say it's kind of like our children. You know, I love when my children ask for something. I know they need it, but I love when they ask for it. Jeremiah the prophet says, you will seek the Lord and you will find him when you search for him with all your heart. You know, as I think about searching for the Lord, I love searching for things. Remember that game you used to play as a child, hide and seek? You hide and, and then one person would come out and try to find you. I used to love playing that game. I love the strategy behind it. And I love to figure out certain people I knew where they were going to go hide. They always went to the same place and hid. And so I would search them out and I'd find them quickly. Others were a little more creative. Uh, they would find a different place every time we played hide and seek to hide. And they made it a little more challenging. But I loved the pursuit of finding somebody that was lost. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, Jesus says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus said, I am revealing myself to you, but what good is it if a man gains everything and he forfeits his own? You know, there is a simple two-word question that people who cling tightly to things of this world they always avoid asking these two-worded questions. The two words are this, then what? You see, that's the question that the rich fool in Jesus' story never asked. So when the barn is finally full, when the finances are finally secured, then what? After the ultimate promotion, the ultimate purchase, the ultimate home, after you climb the ladder of success, and you scale to the highest rung. After the thrill wears off, and it will wear off, then what? Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 3.1 that God has set eternity in the hearts of man. Mark Buchanan says, Our deepest instinct is heaven. Heaven is the ache of our bones, the splinter in our heart. Like the whisper of a faraway waves, we hear crashing In the worlds of a shell, the music of heaven echoes. It's faint, it's elusive, it's haunting, it's beneath and within our daily routines. One author said, The instinct for heaven is just that, homesickness, ancient as night, urgent as daybreak. All your longings for the place you grew up, for the taste of raspberry tarts that your mother placed and pulled out from the hot oven. For that bend in the river where your father took you fishing as a child, where the water was dark and the swirls and and the flies hovered in that deep shade, all these longings, a homesickness, a wanting to fill something, and we have this hint that it only pricks at us. These are the things seen that conjure in our emotions the things unseen. You see, even the atheist has this longing. When people pursue the things of this earth exclusively, they end up with a bitterness at the end of their journey. 
Life seems empty because they long for more than life can provide. They long for the one who made them, whether they acknowledge it or not. You see, there's nothing wrong with wanting raspberry tarts or saving for retirement. However, these can never become the sunum bunum of our lives. When they do, the good becomes the enemy of the best. You see, effective leaders have the ability to discern not only the difference between good and bad, but also the difference between good and the best. And since we cannot do everything well, we must be careful to choose only a few things in which we will concentrate. In 1 John 2, 15 and 17, we find the competing claims of the world and the Father. Jesus says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything that is in the world, the cravings of sinful men, the lust of the eyes, and the the boasting of what he has and what he does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. You see, we often claim to have certain priorities, but our practice reveals something is out of alignment. Our practice reveals what our true priorities are. A determining factor is our perspective. Our perspective should determine our priorities, and our priorities should determine our practice. Do you have an eternal perspective? Or have you settled for an earthly and a temporary perspective? You see, a biblical perspective informs us that anything which keeps us away from the love of the Father is idolatry, no matter how good it may appear to be. In one sense, it is not strictly correct to say that a Christian's priorities should be God first and family second and career and ministry third. If Christ is in our life, He is our all. A Christ-centered life means that everything else must be seen in relationship to His Lordship. This is how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 3. He says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Maybe Thomas Kelly's insight can be helpful. He says, There is a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. On one level, we may be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of the external affairs, but deep within, behind the scenes, at a much profounder level, we may also be in prayer and adoration, song and worship and gentle receptiveness to the divine breathings. In other words, God has created us with the ability to be aware on two levels at one time, but many of us are just content to think about only one plane at a time. We suffer from a lack of attentiveness, a spiritual attention and deficit disorder. Paul knew that there's there's one thing he had to do. He says in Philippians chapter 3, I want to know Christ and I want to know the power of his resurrection and, and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to become like him in death so that somehow that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, I haven't obtained all this. 
I haven't already been made perfect, but I just press on. I hold on to that for which Christ took hold of me. And he says, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it, but this is one thing I do. I forget what is behind. I strain forward to what is ahead. I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenly word in Christ Jesus. Now, oftentimes in our rush to pursue our own desires, we become like a dog whose leash is wrapped around a telephone pole. We pull harder and harder to free ourselves to get more and more tangled, more and more choked in the process. The master, in order to free us, must move us in precisely the opposite direction around the pole. Rather than viewing the master as a liberator, often we mistakenly think that he is hindering us in our pursuit of joy and fulfillment. But if we will patiently trust the master enough to obey his calling, we will find that his is the only path to true freedom. So choose wisely. Put the future over the past. Life is short. You have a big windshield in your car and you have a very small rearview mirror. Focus on what's ahead. Oh yeah, be aware of what's behind you, but the big windshield is what's ahead. Focus on opportunities rather than problems. Listen, life is filled with problems, but it's filled with even more opportunities. And then choose your direction. Rather than climbing on the bandwagon, choose the direction that God has for your life. And as you follow in that direction, realize that you got to aim high for something that will make a difference rather than something that is safe and easy to do. Jeremiah put it this way, this is what the Lord says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the strong man boast in his strength or the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and he knows me. He knows that I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Oh, my friend, I want you to know that you can live a life of fulfillment. And we have just covered the first principle in the broadcast today. And the first principle, if you're going to live and thrive during times of stress, you must tighten up your priorities and tighten up the plans that God has for you. Here, let me give you the second one by way of introduction, and we'll cover the third one in the broadcast tomorrow. But here's the second one. After you have tightened up your plans and your priorities, number two, lighten up my attitude. Lighten up the actions that I'm facing. Now, I want you to write the name or think about the name of a person that you greatly admire. I have somebody in my mind right now that I greatly admire. One of the things I admire about this person is their attitude and their action. And one word that would describe this person that I'm thinking about is that this person has humor. This person has a good sense of humor. They look at life and they look at it from a humorous perspective. Oh, no, they're really tight on their plans and their priorities, right? They're not a professional comedian. They realize they have very important priorities in their lives, but they also have lightened up their attitude and their actions because they understand that anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. As I think about anxiety, 
Some people will say that God will never ask me to do something that I can't do. You know, I've come to the place in life that I believe that God will often ask us to do something that we cannot do. Henry Blackaby calls it a a God-sized agenda. They're always beyond what people can do because he wants to demonstrate his nature, his strength, his provision, his kindness. And so God will ask you to do something that you can't do, but then he gives you the ability to do it. Now, if he's asking you to do something that you cannot do of your own strength, and he's going to give you the ability to do it, there is no stress. It is he who steps in with the plan and with the provision. Join me tomorrow as we continue on this subject of how I can live above stress and how I can actually thrive in times of great stress. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Can I pray for you today? So Lord, I pray for the one who is listening right now, whose plans have run amok. They've got off course. Lord, I pray that as they face the stress that they're encountering today, that they will put you first in their priorities and you first in their plans. We pray this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.